podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. Okay, so good morning everyone at this uh, wonderful and early hour. Um, I hope you all got a good night's sleep anyway. Um, so as, as you know, today we're going to have a two-part uh, two lecture. We're going to start with basically the last content of, uh, of this lecture, which is going to be on mergers and acquisitions. And in the second half, we're going to take your question and answers. So um, we got a couple, and um, I'm going to go over these as well. OK, so just to, uh, just to make sure we know what's, uh, what's going on today. Um, mergers and acquisitions is really kind of at the very end of this, uh, of this course. And I think it's a, hmm. well, does that work? OK. Ah. Not the best, but we'll see. We'll see. So mergers and acquisitions puts us at the very end of this, uh, of this course. And why is this interesting? It's because we're looking at firm boundaries, right? So in the rest of the course, up until last week, we've taken the firm as an entity as given. Okay. Now we're going to look at, uh, after last week, we've looked at horizontal and vertical uh, firm boundaries. We're now looking at ways by which firms actually change these boundaries. Okay? This could be either vertically or horizontally, but um, that's the idea. And what, what's interesting, I think, is that from a theoretical point of view, it's fairly easy to think about how to choose your horizontal boundaries, how to choose your vertical boundaries, and so on. Um, what happens in reality, so mergers, acquisitions, is actually quite a, quite a complicated thing. So if you just, uh, I don't know what, uh, what your plans are for the, uh, for the future, but I guess one of the most prestigious and, and, uh, and most interesting, but also most, uh, most stressful jobs is if you go to an investment bank do, uh, uh, and do mergers and acquisitions, right? So all these, uh, all these things, and that, that kind of shows that you put together a whole process. It starts out with identifying targets, then you, uh, you get in, in touch with the targets. Even then, once you have a general agreement that uh, there should be a takeover, the next step is to do the due diligence. And I think that's what, uh, that's what the banks do a lot. And they basically go through all the numbers and try to, value it, uh, to evaluate the company. So we're, of course, not going to go into that much detail today. But still, just to make sure, just to make sure that uh, um, you, you sort of realize that this is a fairly big, uh, fairly big topic. Okay? So we're going to look at what mergers and acquisitions are, of course, uh, just giving a, a short definition. And why do firms engage in mergers and acquisitions? And we can look at this both from the buyer side and the, uh, and the seller side. And I think what's quite interesting, of course, is that for this to happen, for a merger or an acquisition to happen, hmm. so the good, the good news is that I know you're awake because you're all talking. Okay? Um, the bad news is it's, it's, it's a bit noisy. Um, so what's interesting from, um, from a theoretical point of view is that the buyer and the target, right, they both have to agree. So that's kind of interesting. You don't see very often, I mean, you, you, you see the whole idea of hostile takeovers and so on. But in the end, um, no one can be forced to sell, right? No, 
No one can be forced to sell, and so therefore, even the target or the shareholders of the target will have to agree. And we'll see what their goal might be, what their motivations might be. And then we look closer at the, at the M&A process, right? So what are the steps that happen in the, uh, in the meantime, and um, what are the things we, we look at in these in this contexts? So relatedness and fit. So when we try to identify, when we try to figure out what, uh, what uh, firm to take over, or what firm to acquire, with which firm to merge, um, the question of relatedness or fit is an important, uh, is an important part. So, you may know this under the, uh, under the uh, buzzword of synergies, right? So whenever you talk about a merger, people talk about synergies. Synergy value, what's the purchase price? How do you get to a purchase price? And uh, in the end, <clears throat> who benefits from, uh, from the purchase? Financing, we're just going to, uh, to glance over. And then the whole process of post-merger integration. So what happens after? Um, the merger has taken place, because that's really crucial when it comes to realizing these synergies. Okay, so what are mergers and acquisitions? An acquisition is when you purchase the property rights of a firm, uh, of, uh, of a firm as an acquirer. Um, these could be shares, these could be assets. Okay, because they, they basically indicate what the property rights are. Um, you do that with a target, so you acquire uh, the assets or the shares of a, of a target. Um, and I guess the defining feature of an acquisition is that the buyer obtains control of the target. Right? So after that, the target, the firm that's been bought, usually ceases to exist as an independent entity. Okay? So, you can, you can imagine that that's typically when, uh, when issues of integration take place. Um, what are you going to do? Are you going to uh, acquire the firm and then uh, divide it up into parts? Are you going to acquire the firm for one particular type of asset that they own? And so on. So an acquisition is often much more controversial than a merger. Um, What's a merger in, um, uh, in, <clears throat> in comparison? A merger is when you have two firms. I mean, you could theoretically even have more, but uh, two firms often of somewhat similar size, and those decide that they want to hold joint operation, joint ownership. What happens there financially is that often the stocks of the individual firms are being withdrawn, okay, and new stocks are issued. Okay, of the uh, of the joint company of the uh, of the merged company. Um, often, the way this happens is that uh, well, I mean, given that by by definition you can't acquire another firm when you merge, but you have to somehow go together. What often happens is that um, there's some negotiation about who gets what share of the joint ownership, and that often uh, that often happens through sort of mental share swaps. Okay, you get a certain percentage of me, I get a certain percentage of you, and then we form a joint, uh, a joint company. So mergers are often, um, <clears throat> often kind of uh, hailed, they're often advertised as being a merger of equals, right? You may remember Daimler and Chrysler, where um, it was very strongly uh, always mentioned that, uh, well, this is just a, a merger of two equal-sized, equally important companies. Okay. In reality, 
it doesn't happen very often, right? In reality, it was, uh, it was clear, for example, that with Daimler and Chrysler, um, that Daimler was by far the dominant firm. And so therefore, um, lots, of, uh, lots of Chrysler managers actually uh, ended up leaving. And I think one important part here, or uh, one important signal here, is always that um, when you merge, um, you will typically only have one CEO, right? And it's, of course, important which of the two firms, which of the two firms that merged will actually represent the CEO? Which of them will get, uh, will get the CEO slot? Okay, and that is always a demonstration of who is probably the more powerful firm in, the, uh, in, in this merger. Okay? Um, if you want to make it very clear that this is a merger of equals, you might have even two CEOs. So, but that often ends up not being, uh, not being particularly successful. So merger of equals, nice idea in theory. In practice, it doesn't really happen very often. So what are some large-scale mergers in recent, uh, in recent times? And uh, so here you have a, you have a number of them, um, number of acquisitions. So I guess one thing that, uh, or one, one aspect that was very interesting, one uh, history that was very interesting, was the takeover of Manisman by Vodafone. Okay? So, well, this is 13 years ago. Were you in primary school then, roughly? So maybe you haven't, you, you, you haven't been following that merger very closely. But um, so what, this, was, this was very interesting because um, Vodafone back then was, of course, a, a mobile phone company. Mannesmann was a traditional German uh, heavy industry company that just happened to, have, um, happened to have a mobile phone network. And so Vodafone wanted to start building a footprint within Europe of their mobile phone operations. Now, so what they did is they uh, launched what's called a hostile takeover. So they, uh, they made an offer for all the shares out there on the market. Um, they made an offer of a certain price for all the shares of, uh, of Manisman. Um, and Manisman management was not happy at all. Uh, so they, uh, they said, well, you know, we're, we're not happy. We don't think that this is a good offer. We don't even want to sell at all. Um, this was interesting also because um, that was back in, uh, in uh, Schröder's uh, chancellorship. Um, and so Schröder got, got involved. And he said, well, a traditional company like, uh, like Mannesmann, a traditional German company like Mannesmann should not be in foreign hands. Um, so that was another, um, <clears throat> another interesting aspect here. You can see the volume was massive of this, uh, of this deal. I think it was the largest merger worldwide um, at that point. Um, and lo and behold, what happened? Um, Vodafone basically took, um, took the mobile phone network of Manisman, um, used that, renamed that Manisman, and uh, pretty much shut down everything else. Right? So they shut down, they resold it, and so on. So, in, in a sense, the fear, um, the fear of, of, uh, of Schröder and the, uh, I think Nordrhein-Westfalen was, um, was a major shareholder. Um, so the fear that uh, this traditional German company was going to be broken up and this whole acquisition only took place to get one particular type of assets, this held completely true, right? So this is exactly what, uh, uh, what happened. So it was very... Very controversial, uh, controversial um, merger, and you see a lot of these uh, of these others. If you think of P&G acquiring Vela, um, so you have this one uh, massive conglomerate acquiring a particular brand. Um, Microsoft acquiring Skype. So here again, um, Microsoft 
being a fairly large company with a large portfolio, acquiring a single product firm, as in, uh, as in Skype. So all of these mergers, all of these acquisitions, I think, uh, have made the press quite, uh, quite significantly in these last years. OK? Now, generally, um, another aspect that I think is quite interesting, um, and it's, it's, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's not, an obvious, not an obvious thing to, to happen, is that mergers and acquisitions tend to occur in waves. Okay, so what you see is that you don't get sort of a constant number of mergers, uh, a constant number of mergers every uh, every year, but you see these spikes, you see these uh, these waves, and I think it's interesting if you think about um, what I what I said two slides ago. I said that for a merger or an acquisition to happen, both firms will have to agree. Um, so the, the target has to agree to sell, the acquirer has to agree to, uh, to buy, right? And so these spikes actually imply that, um, you know, at the same time, some firms have to be willing to, to, to uh, sell, while at the same time, firms have to be willing to buy. And this is not, this is not really trivial, right? So imagine, I don't know, imagine you're in, a, in an upward business cycle. This would imply that firms have more money. Right? So if firms have more money, they want to acquire more. But at the same time, the firms that might be potential targets might not want to sell because they're also better off. Right? So it's an interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting phenomenon to think about that you have these merger waves rather than, um, uh, rather than a constant number of, uh, of mergers. Um, People have been looking at this in, in many different contexts. So um, some people or some, some researchers have found that this seems to be an information story. So um, you have one firm starting off in an industry, acquiring another one, and then other firms see actually, hey, this seems like a good idea. This firm is doing well as a result of the merger, as a result of the acquisition, and so we want to do the same. So that's an argument that's, uh, that's very often put forward. Okay. And so you see these waves very much uh, in, uh, in individual countries, but also worldwide. Um, now, why would firms want to merge? Right? And for that, we need to figure out first what a typology of mergers, uh, of mergers might be. So we have horizontal mergers. We have, well, we'll, we'll get to that. We have vertical mergers, and we have conglomerate mergers. So let's see. So what's a, what's a horizontal merger? A horizontal merger is a merger between two firms in the same industry. Okay, so for example here, Vodafone and, uh, and AirTouch was one, where, uh, uh, where you had two firms obviously in the same industry. That's what Vodafone wanted to acquire Manisman for, um, and, uh, and that was that. Anyway, so what are some of the goals here? One goal might be to reduce competition. Okay. So you reduce competition if you buy another firm in the market. So if there's, if there's a couple of firms in the market and you buy one of them, do you make the market less competitive, right? So there's one less competitor, and uh, therefore you would expect profits to be higher, margins to be higher, and so on. The second element or the second motivation might be that you reduce the risk of becoming a target yourself, right? You become bigger, 
which means it's more difficult to, uh, uh, to take over uh, your company. And you also gain bargaining power vis-a-vis um, -vis other firms in the same industry or vis-a-vis -vis vertical, uh, uh, vertical firms. Hmm. Okay. Let's just do it. Great. So another horizontal merger motivation might be that you have production issues, right? So you want to grow, you want to um, combine operations of different firms to realize economies of scale or scope. Okay? You just want to become larger because that gives you a better possibility to produce more cheaply and so on. You also might acquire, you also might want, to, uh, might want to go together with another firm because you want access to new technologies. So if one firm is very advanced, the other firm is not, then there might be a benefit in merging because that, in a sense, you could, you could argue, that's a way of realizing economies of scale, right? So one firm has invested in the technology and it can now spread it to the other firm. Market motivations um, may also play a role, especially if we think of horizontal mergers on a geographical dimension. So you may enter into new products. Not every firm might produce the same variety of a product, even if, it's, uh, even if they're in the same industry. Um, they might have a different orientation. They might have a different positioning in terms of markets, in terms of consumer groups. They might have a different brand name, right? And so all of these arguments would also be reasons for horizontal mergers. So you have firms in the same industry, and these uh, firms in the same industry go together. Now, what about mer vertical mergers? Vertical mergers here are about firms, or about products, that clearly have some complementary relationship to each other. So AOL and Time Warner, AOL was a massive um, <clears throat> Uh, was a massive internet portal and internet provider, Time Warner was the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest provider of content, right? So, and so the idea was that, hey, you've got consumers. These consumers are connected to the internet. Now, what do they want on the internet? They want basically, um, they, they want to consume content. And so content was something that Time Warner was able to provide. Same with, uh, with Microsoft. So our consumers, Microsoft consumers, Will have, uh, will have an operating system. They use all sorts of software. Um, but to communicate, um, communicate via voice, um, they might want to use Skype. So what motivates vertical mergers? Um, reducing transaction costs. So for example, um, AOL back, uh, uh, back then, AOL used to have a so-called walled garden strategy. So they produced a browser, and that browser was, uh, was proprietary. And that proprietary browser was filled up with content. Now, how did uh, AOL try to fill up that content? They tried to engage in individual contracts, in individual connections with content providers. So of course, if you acquire one of them, if you acquire the largest, Time Warner, then the advantage, or if you merge with uh, Time Warner, then the advantage there is that you don't have to negotiate every single deal. Right? So that was an, uh, that was an advantage for reducing transaction costs. You gain control over upstream or downstream resources. That's another big motivation. Um, <clears throat> of course, if you buy the biggest content provider, then that's going to secure preferential access to, uh, uh, to that firm's content. 
It's interesting to, uh, to note that very often when, uh, when governments, when competition authorities will evaluate mergers, one of the conditions they often, uh, they often set is that, yes, sure, you can merge. AOL and Time Warner can merge, but you have to commit to allow other firms to give other firms the same access to, let's say, Time Warner's content. So that's an interesting and important issue here. Raising barriers to entry, um, it's kind of related to, uh, uh, to that. If another internet provider needs content as well, and Time Warner is already, uh, is already strongly linked to AOL, then of course it makes it more difficult to enter here. Conglomerate mergers. What are conglomerate mergers? Conglomerate mergers are really mergers between firms or acquisitions of firms, of brands, in completely different markets. Right? So this would be if, um, I don't know, um, BMW would acquire Starbucks, let's say. Okay? So this would be an acquisition where kind of all the motivations that we had before, you don't gain market power by acquiring a coffee shop. You don't gain market, uh, you don't uh, uh, use technology more, uh, more efficiently as a result of that. You don't get economies of scale. Um, you're not making it more difficult for uh, Daimler or Mercedes-Benz to enter a particular market and so on. So these are all not the motivations for conglomerate mergers. Um, they're very often more treated as financial investments. So diversifying risk, it's as if you buy a share um, that's negatively correlated to your current share portfolio. Okay, that diversifies your, uh, your risk. Um, there may be complements. Um, so there may be uh, complements in, uh, in different industries. So here you might gain, uh, gain control over that. And I guess one motivation that's very often, uh, very often put forward, especially for conglomerate mergers, is this whole idea that managers actually like to manage big companies. Okay? And so if you are a, de a decision maker in a firm, if you're a manager, um, and sounds sounds silly, but if you have some spare cash lying around, which is, for example, what happens with Microsoft, so they, they're sitting on huge piles of, uh, of free cash flow, so they can do whatever they want with it. Um, one of the motivations might be that the management decides to enlarge the firm um, and to build what's called an empire for them. Okay, um, it's this is not not as silly as, as one might think. I think so. If you if you do a study of um, management salaries and the size of the firm, then you can see a clear positive correlation. So the larger the firm you the firm is that you manage, the higher your salary is going to be, and that gives you a very easy, almost I mean almost mechanical connection between your, uh, uh, between the size of your firm and your incentives to merge. Also, growth. Growth is very often a, dim a dimension um, of your success. So if you grow as a firm, or if you grow your firm as a manager, um, then that's usually seen as success. And it's a very easy way to grow if you just acquire other firms. Okay? So even though that might have nothing to do with synergies, nothing to do with diversifying risk and so on, it's just growing for growing's sake. Okay. So, so much from the buyer's side. What about the target side? So, very often you get firms that are in financial trouble. And therefore, they're happy being taken over. 
So that's the, uh, uh, I guess that's the simplest explanation for why you wouldn't want to, uh, want to, uh, to be taken over. Um, acquiring funds for investments. So if you're just strapped for cash, um, one way to solve this, other than, um, other than kind of watering down your shares or, or um, uh, I don't know, uh, issuing debt and so on, one of the uh, uh, ways of doing that might be to find an acquirer or to find, uh, uh, to find a firm to merge with. So that gives you funds, that gives you free cash flow for investment. Or if you simply feel that there's a, there's a, a scope, there's potential for restructuring the company. Okay? That might be more difficult if you just stay within the same boundaries of the firm. So being acquired or, um, <clears throat> uh, or merging might be a way of starting such a restructuring process. What about the management or the owner? Right? So company and owner might not necessarily have the same interests. Um, if you're the management or if you're, uh, if you're the owner, uh, one way of kind of getting rid of a problem you don't want to have is just to, is just to sell the company. Okay? So securing an, ex an exit is, uh, is an important motivation. I think you see that quite a bit. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you, often, uh, uh, you often read in the papers that uh, such and such has put the company up for sale, okay? or is on the market looking for buyers. So clearly, they want to uh, get rid of the company to uh, do other stuff with their money. Okay? Um, this is especially an important issue when we're looking at uh, the German Mittelstand. So here, um, <clears throat> one of the big issues is that you often don't find a successor. So these are often family, uh, family firms. And these family firms uh, depend on the fact that the next generation is, is happy to take over the management of the firm. If that does not happen, um, you're going to have to do something with it, right? And one, one solution might be that you put the, hands, uh, you put the company into the hands of uh, some of your senior managers. But if you keep on owning the company, then that might not be something you want to do, right? So maybe you only feel comfortable with your own money if you manage it yourself. And then if another company, uh, if another manager comes in, that might not be something you want. So here, organizing succession, making sure that um, kind of ownership and management is ceded to, uh, uh, to another party is another important aspect. Um, and thirdly, and related to that, um, you might want to sell a company to solve disagreements among owners, right? So um, I think one... Um, one issue, one, one example here, um, I don't know if you've heard of Arsenal Football Club. So that's, the, I mean, in, in the UK, of course, these clubs are all run like corporations. They all have shares um, that are owned by, uh, by major shareholders and so on. And so, for example, at Arsenal, there are two very large, um, <clears throat> two very large shareholders, um, I think an American and a Russian, if I remember correctly. Um, and so these two are in bitter dispute, okay? And it's always mooted, it's always uh, suggested that maybe one day um, Arsenal are going to be taken over by uh, um, a third party, and that third party uh, will basically solve the problem because I guess the, the American Stan Kroenke, I guess is what, how you would pronounce him, he would love to take over the shares of, uh, of Berezovsky, and Berezovsky would like to take over the shares of uh, Kroenke. So it's just, it just does, doesn't, uh, doesn't work 
uh, work out amongst these, uh, these two. So selling to a third party might be a solution. Okay, so these are the motivations. How and why, or in, and how do we proceed? How do we uh, work through a merger? Well, we work through a merger in the following way. Let's actually see if this works. No. It was unfortunate. Ah, yeah, okay. Um, so, what are the steps that we, uh, uh, that we take? We first find if there's a suitable target. Okay? We try to look for a, uh, for a target to merge or to take over. We then do the due diligence, and that's really where, um, where the investment banks of this world come in, um, and they have, uh, uh, they have uh, young graduates work basically from 7 a.m. to uh, 2 a.m., I guess, um, to do the due diligence. So you have about two weeks, typically, two to three weeks, where um, you, as an acquirer, um, go through the entire company, go through the entire books, the entire financials, uh, the entire operations of the company, and try to figure out if the price that the firm is charging you, the firm is demanding of you, is a fair price. So that's the idea of the due diligence. Uh, of course, you're also trying to uncover, uh, to uncover any skeletons that might be in the closet, any uh, <clears throat> possibilities of uh, uh, remaining debts or remaining, uh, uh, remaining legal threats and so on. Assuming you've done that, assuming you've found the right target, you've done the due, di you do, you've done the due diligence, um, then there's the deal. Okay? With a deal, you have to finance the deal. Um, we're not going to go into that, um, but basically financing can go, uh, happen either through shares or through straight cash offers, okay? or through some mix. Um, and then after that, after all this is done, um, this often takes one, two years, um, after that, you have to integrate the companies, right? So you have to go for an integration process that typically takes another three years, right? So post-merger integration is something where um, firms typically also put, place a lot, of, uh, a lot of effort. So you identify targets in line with your strategic goal, and uh, the main issues here are relatedness and fit. Um, you, that's what I just mentioned. Uh, you perform all the financial, legal, strategic analyses of the potential target. And the goal is to identify if there are potential synergies. So what's in it for the acquiring firm? So then, of course, you negotiate a price. And then you decide what you want to do with the firm, right? You've acquired this firm. Do you want to just leave it as is? So. Do you just want the returns? Do you just want the financial inflows of, uh, of that firm? Or do you want to integrate it in one way or another? Do you want to integrate it a lot? Do you want to uh, uh, integrate just some parts of the operations and so on? And then you want to implement the whole process. So the most important part when it comes to identifying a target is to figure out to what degree the acquirer and the target are related and they fit together. And we can think of many dimensions of how firms might be related. So they might be related because they have different, they might fit together because they have, uh, they have similar strategies, right? So you may have two different, uh, two different firms that follow a very high value strategy, a high image strategy, so that might uh, be an argument that they fit well. They might be organized in a very different, uh, in a very similar way. So that might be another um, way in which they are 
related. Okay? They might have similar styles. And so that was another um, issue, I think, when, uh, when Daimler and Chrysler merged. Um, it was generally found that these two firms have very different managerial styles. And that was, that was listed as one of the problems of this, uh, of this merger. Having external and internal fit um, is another important, uh, important issue. So, and here, I think we can already see some of the tensions. Um, often you see mergers with a goal of expanding into different geographical markets. So what's important here is that these markets are different, right? So you, you don't want to be, or you, you often don't take over firms that are in the same geographical market. Think of Vodafone taking over Manisman. One of their main reasons was that they wanted entry into the German market. Okay. Core competencies. Um, again, the question is, do you want firms with the same core competencies? So they might follow the same strategy. They might do the same things well. Or do you want to, uh, you do want to uh, buy up firms that do different things well? Right? It's not entirely clear. And the issue here is, that there can be benefits and similarities, and there can be benefits in complementarities. So synergies here might come from a number of things. So for example, if we think of economies of scale, right? economies of scale only realize, only happen if two firms are doing the same thing. So you can basically redo the same thing over a larger, uh, over a larger uh, scale. So that's when being similar actually helps. Increased market power. So only your market power only increases if it's actually two firms doing previous, or that previously did, diff, uh, previously did the same thing, but in two different firms if you uh, pull these two together. Then that's an advantage. And again, you want to acquire similar firms. On the other hand, you might benefit from diversification economies. Here, it's important to have complementarities, but we'll go into that in more detail. So and what's, what's another complication? I mean, you can see sort of mergers are, are a complicated, uh, complicated issue, managerial issue. Um, the effects of relatedness and fit will depend on the integration activities. So some things that may look very different at the start, right, or before the merger takes place may then be um, assimilated, they may be integrated in a, in a successful way. On the other hand, you might also think that uh, firms with different core competencies sound like a match made in heaven, right? So potentially you can combine the best of both worlds and, uh, and put them together. But if core competencies, for example, mean that one firm does uh, production very well and the other firm does sales very well, this might also have an impact on the different cultures of the firms, right? So one firm might have a very efficiency-oriented uh, culture. The other firm might have a very creative culture. We talked about stuck in the middle a couple of weeks ago. That might be the result of a, uh, of a merger where two parts of the firm, of the newly merged firm, are now trying to do different things. So here's just as a kind of as a, as a summary, um, the issue that both similarities and differences um, <clears throat> offer these synergistic uh, potentials. So for example, if we think of products and core competencies, so this is about what firms can do, this is what, uh, what about uh, firms are currently doing, similar products 
can offer potential, uh, potential synergy. So here, um, Mini and BMW, of course, both produce cars. So there's an obvious potential for, uh, for synergies. Complementarities, eBay and PayPal do not do the same thing. They are in different but related markets. They're in different but complementary markets. So you might, um, <clears throat> you might pay your transactions on eBay via PayPal. So it's an obvious complementarity, but it's a useful thing. It's a, it's a useful thing that, the, that these two do not do exactly the same. Having similar core competencies, um, so we don't have a, a concrete example here, but uh, if you have two sales-oriented companies, so let's assume, for example, um, one brand-driven company acquiring another brand-driven company, that might, be a, uh, uh, that might be a merger of two firms with similar core competencies. Um, you might also have situations where there's complementarities in the core competencies. So, for example, when uh, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, acquired the uh, uh, firm called Human Genome Sciences, um, there was an obvious argument that uh, they're not doing the same thing as GSK, but they might be doing other things and they might be doing them better than GSK is, right? So here, GSK has a competence in drugs produ production and marketing, so they're very good at the downstream element, whereas Human Genome Sciences do, are, are very good at developing these, uh, these drugs. Right? So here it's obvious that uh, there should be uh, clear advantages from these two firms going together. Okay, so imagining that we figured out um, that there's a firm we want to, uh, uh, we want to acquire, that there's some, uh, some, some degree of synergies coming either from similarities or complementarities, how do we get to a purchase price? So we start out, every firm that's being taken over, every firm that's being bought, has an expected net present value of expected future cash flows. Okay? This is what we call the intrinsic value. Note that actually this, uh, this, this value could also be negative. Right? So we might have a firm that's currently making losses, and we're not expecting this firm to ever make any profits again. Right? In that case, the NPV, the net present value of expected cash flows, might be negative. And you might argue that um, kind of, um, if, you think of uh, if you think of Mannesmann in that, uh, uh, back in 2000, um, one of the arguments was that you know, the, the industrial arm of Mannesmann is only making losses from now on. The mobile phone arm of Mannesmann is going to make uh, positive profits, or is going to generate future cash flows. So, you know, the intrinsic value of that combined firm is more or less zero. That might, be, might have been an argument. Now, the market value is not necessarily the same as the intrinsic value, right? Because um, there might be premia because someone buys a, uh, uh, buys a share of a firm because he anticipates that in the medium term, this firm is going to be taken over, right? So if he anticipates future takeover, uh, future takeover processes, then um, he's willing to pay more than just the expected net present value of cash flows. <clears throat> now, that's not the price that buyers typically, uh, typically uh, pay. Buyers typically pay um, a price that's even higher than the market value. That's what's often called the markup per share. That's the purchase price. Okay? 
Why does that happen? Well, if you offered me exactly market value, then I don't necessarily see why I should sell to you, right? I might, uh, I might see this as a signal. If you want to buy my firm, if you want to buy my share, then that might mean that there are other firms also wanting to buy my shares. And so therefore, I might just hold on. I might just hold out and say, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you put a little, uh, a little sweetener on top? Why, why don't you put a little markup on top? So the, that difference between purchase price and the market value is what we call the markup per share. And now what you get, or what, uh, what we have to uh, consider, is the fact that um, a merger or an acquisition always takes place between two willing companies, right? Between two companies that are happy, or between two sets of shareholders that are happy to sell and that are happy to pay the price, right? So both firms have to agree. And that means that the net present value of the improvements from the combined company above what the market expects is something that uh, will then accrue to the uh, um, will then accrue to the buyers of the uh, of the uh, firm, <clears throat> right? So, in other words, we need a difference between the purchase price and the potential synergy value. Why is that? Because otherwise, the buyers shareholders would not want to buy the company, right? If they pay up to the amount of expected synergies, then that's not a that's not a profitable uh, that's not a profitable business for them. So you basically need this difference here, market value, synergy value, and the purchase price has to lie somewhere in between. Only then will both parties, the seller and the buyer, be happy to engage in that transaction. So <clears throat> how then are the gains split up? So what's on top here, the difference between, this, uh, between the overall value of the combined firm and the purchase price is the value to the acquirer's shareholders. The value to the target shareholders is the difference between the intrinsic value and the purchase price. Right? So that's basically what you get on top of what the company is actually worth um, if you sell the company. OK, so that's the, that's, the idea of, um, <clears throat> that's the idea of how you get to a price. And what's I, what I think is important is that you really have to have these, this difference between the market value and the additional synergies. And somewhere in between, we have to find a, uh, a purchase price. OK, um, <clears throat> so assume now we found the firm, we identified the firm, we made a takeover bid, the firm was uh, eventually, um, eventually the shareholders agreed, and now we've bought the firm. So let's take the example here. P&G was the acquirer, the Bella was the, uh, was the target, and the idea was that um, we start out with basically a firm that's been acquired by the, uh, uh, by the, by the larger firm, but eventually, um, it should, in, should be integrated so these firms become one. Okay? And it's basically the acquiring firm that continues to live. <coughs> now, the big question, or one big question is always, um, how much you want to integrate? How much do you want to integrate the company that you just bought? Well, the advantage is that you can often realize synergistic potentials. So potentially, if you, uh, if you, have, two or if you have the same asset on to on, uh, in two companies, then 
integrating them might enable you to save one set of assets. Okay? One firm might be able to do one, uh, one particular activity very well, the other one not. So integrating them, so making sure that, I don't know, the production competence of, uh, firm, of firm A, of the acquired firm, also translates into production competence for firm B. That is something you only get if integration happens. So <clears throat> what are disadvantages of integration? Why, why might integration not be, not be a good idea? Well, first of all, if you acquire the firm, if you acquire a, a firm, one phenomenon that you often see is that the management of the acquired firm just, happens, uh, just ends up leaving. Okay? So the more you integrate, effectively what you're saying if you, integrate a, uh, if you integrate a firm, you're saying that what you've done so far wasn't very good. Okay? And that's not particularly encouraging for, uh, uh, for, firm, uh, for managers, and so they often end up leaving. Okay? So the more you integrate, the more the uh, management turnover is. <coughs> And this also, this is not just uh, referring to the management, but it's also re referring to the rest of, uh, of the company. So the more kind of the, the ways you've done it before are changed, the more people, uh, sort of perceived outside people actually meddle with your operations, the more frustrated people get. So this often leads to, uh, to negative emotions, also increased turnover, um, demoralized staff and so on. It's what's called the, the conquering army syndrome. So basically you've got the, the, sort of the, the, the acquiring firm taking over the target and then they come basically they come and tell, tell the firms from the, uh, tell the employees of the acquired firm how things are really done, right? And so that's not, that's not something that goes down well, right? So if we were to merge with the technical university and then, uh, I don't know, the management department there would come and tell us how we really should run things, we probably wouldn't be particularly excited. Okay? So, <clears throat> we can give a typology of, um, of different combinations of uh, integration efforts, um, <clears throat> depending on the need for strategic integration. So how much do you need to align the strategies of firms that were previously independent and the need for organizational autonomy. So how much do firms need to be uh, autonomous um, to be successful? So if here, for example, the need for organizational autonomy is high, but the need for strategic integration is low, what you end up doing is um, you buy a firm, but you leave them alone pretty much, right? So um, integrating actually changes two things. It, first of all, it reduces the organizational autonomy of the target, and secondly, it might influence the strategy of the, uh, of the acquired firm. So that's not, a good, um, <clears throat> that's not a good idea. So you often have management at arm's length. This is, for example, what Cisco did. Um, Cisco often end up buying firms and then just leaving them completely alone, right? So they, the only thing that they might do is um, they invest in, uh, or they, they uh, engage in capital investment to create value, but they do not engage in uh, any sort of uh, organizational integration or strategic integration. <clears throat> um, if the need for organizational autonomy is low, but the need for integration, strategic integration is also low, um, we typically have a holding structure. So there's no plan to integrate, 
Um, the only thing that happens <coughs> is um, integration or is, uh, is sort of interaction through financial transfers, through sharing the risk, or through giving general management capabilities. So here, um, you know, some, some autonomy is taken away, but um, that's mainly a financial transactions, uh, mainly a financial transaction structure rather than any sort of integration. So you want to leave the company alone, the, the company that you've, uh, uh, that you've acquired, because you believe that their strategy actually works fairly well. If there's a high need for strategic integration and a low need for organizational autonomy, then you want to absorb the company. Okay? So this, you, you, want to align the, uh, you want to align the strategy. Um, you want to make sure that the two companies become one. Okay? Um, the question here is how do you best time the integration? So is that something you want to do very quickly and straight away, or is it something you want to do gradually? Um, and here, I guess, the, the conquering army syndrome is most important or most, uh, most problematic, potentially, um, because you, want, you basically are interfering a lot with a company that you've just acquired. So you want to make sure that, uh, that that's something that works fairly painlessly. And the question is, do you do that? Do you do it painlessly if you do it very quickly? Or is it more painless? Is it more uh, acceptable to take your time to do it? Then if you have a high need for organizational autonomy, but on the other hand, you want to make sure that these two firms have very similar strategies, um, you well, could call it a symbiosis, um, a symbiosis setting where clearly there's a, there's a big, big uh, a challenge for, um, <clears throat> for management because First, they need to coexist, right? First, they need to be left alone to some extent, but at the same time, you want to integrate them gradually, most probably, because you want the two strategies to, uh, uh, to combine. You want the two strategies to assimilate each other. Um, so the key here, and I think that's where you have probably the highest likelihood of a merger of equals, is that both firms need to learn from each other, right? Very often, so the absorption for a strategy, for example, is where one firm dictates the terms and tells the other firm how to, uh, how to integrate. Here, given that firm A depends on some key skills from uh, firm B and vice versa, um, you want to make sure that uh, you definitely avoid this uh, conquering army syndrome or estranging the, uh, uh, the two firms. Okay, so this is not an easy task, as I, uh, as I said. Um, there might be potential problems um, <clears throat> coming from, uh, uh, coming from, uh, uh, from post-merger integration. So one thing is that, and, and I'm sure you all, uh, you all know this uh, from, from personal behavior, I know it. Um, if I think about, if I engage in some activity and I think I'm, do I'm doing it for a certain reason, and I think I'm going to do it in a certain way, um, and things change. I might be reluctant to change, my, uh, uh, to change my behavior, to change my procedure, right? So managers often cling to the original logic of the deal, right? We acquired this firm to fully integrate it. If it turns out that this is not such a, a smart idea, um, you know, maybe you need to change your approach. Maybe you need to do something, uh, something different. So, what are reasons for, uh, uh, for that? Well, 
after the deal, so after you've paid, after the transaction has taken place, there might be a false sense of security. There might be a sense that, hey, the deal is done, right? So now, not much more to do. The second reason why we might have that is that there could be unexpected action by competitors, right? So that's why, in fact, strategic thinking, um, thinking like, well, thinking like a game theorist in the sense that what you do will automatically trigger responses by other firms is something that's important. So when you merge, this is, of course, going to change the entire dynamics of the industry. Once the, the, once the dynamics of the industry changes, there might be other reactions by, uh, uh, by uh, competitors. And that's something that may change the original logic of the deal. Okay, so let's just uh, uh, take one example. I think uh, BMW, uh, BMW and Volkswagen at some point went on a, uh, went on a shopping trip, right? So they, they acquired brands here and there. Um, and one of the... Um, so let me let me see if I get this right. Um, so one of the uh, one of the issues was that both firms wanted a uh, uh, wanted a, a luxury brand, right? So they wanted a luxury brand, and so in the end, um, you had one firm, one firm acquiring Rolls Royce, the other firm acquiring Bentley, right? And each firm thought that they were going to get a competitive advantage from buying one of these super luxury brands. But they didn't, because in the end, it completely neutralized, right? So if Rolls-Royce and Bentley had stayed independent or had stayed with the original owners, it wouldn't have changed one thing, right? So here, that's something that, uh, that may change the logic of, uh, of the entire deal. Post-merger integration might also lead to a destruction of value, right? So employees might just be unhappy. Um, you might lose valuable personnel. Um, interestingly, um, you see that a lot when, uh, whenever universities merge. So universities, uh, there was a big wave of mergers of uh, universities in London, for example, and um, the idea always sounded great on, on, in, on paper, right? So you have strong department of X in, depart in uh, University 1, and you have a strong department of Y in University B, and so merging those two could make a much stronger university. Well, actually what happened is that lots of people left and people were very unhappy, right? Um, and possible reasons here might again be mispromotion. So if you're working within one company and you basically thought you were up for the next big job, and then all of a sudden um, you get another firm merging, um, taking over, and uh, probably putting someone else in, in front of you, then that's frustrating, of course. Um, having job cuts, I mean, part of the rationale for mergers is to save cost, to realize synergies by eliminating assets that you use twice, right? Or functions that you, use tw uh, that you currently have twice. And so job cuts and the insecurity related to job cuts may be an important, uh, <clears throat> an important element of the loss of morale among employees. Um, the third problem that, uh, uh, that you might see in post-merger integration is kind of a vacuum of leadership. So if no one really clearly takes a lead um, to articulate, to com communicate a new purpose for the firms that are now combined, that's an important, uh, an important aspect as well. Okay? And this, is, this might be particularly difficult in a merger that you pronounce or that you communicate as a merger of equals. 
right? So if a merger of equals takes place, um, it's almost impolite if you say, well, I'm going to be the one taking charge. After all, there's been a CEO of the other firm as well, right? So if you claim, if you, uh, if you, um, well, if you claim to have that leadership role, then other firms, again, or other, uh, other employees might be frustrated. So these two might hang together very clearly. So the challenge, as I mentioned before, the challenge is how do you, how do you integrate two independent companies into one firm, right? So the leader of the acquired firm used to be a leader, right? So uh, now all of a sudden he's supposed to do something else or he's supposed to leave the company. So that might be some uh, uh, one problem. The other problem is, of course, that um, you have employees that are nervous. You have employees that don't know what's going, to, uh, what's going to happen. And so managing these issues, managing more or less emotional issues um, in these times, in uncertain times, is a, is a tricky task. Especially, and that's kind of, uh, well, if you, if you think about the whole process, um, mergers are very often, uh, mergers and acquisitions are very often transactions driven very much by financial considerations, right? So you spend two years trying to figure out what the right price is, what the right target is, um, how to structure the financing and so on. And then all of a sudden, once this is done, now you're supposed to take care of the, uh, of the emotional part or of the, uh, the, the non-financial part. And that's not an easy task. So um, very often you see mergers or you see managers that were very successful in seeing through the first transaction fail at the process of uh, merger integration. Good, so in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip this poll and I'm going, just going to give you um, a general sense of how many mergers are actually successful. Okay, and the, uh, the, the, the sad statistics, the, uh, well, the, the shocking statistic is I think that uh, many mergers, lots and lots of mergers actually fail. Okay, so here's just a, a, a number of statistics. Um, I guess most, most stressful is the fact that 75% uh, of mergers do not achieve their stated uh, objectives. Um, in fact, if you think about it from a, purely, from a purely financial point of view, even 60% of mergers do not manage to outperform the stock market. Okay, so that, again, is not, uh, is, is not, a, not an encouraging statistic. Um, and you can, uh, you can go through these, except for this one, uh, Bruno, Bruno, who was more optimistic. But um, the general perception is that about half of the mergers fail, right? Half of the mergers fail. And that's, uh, that's a pretty serious, uh, pretty serious percentage. And it, it suggests that looking at this process, lots of things can go wrong, right? You might identify the wrong targets. You might pay too much for the target, or you might just be bad at integrating the firm, okay? So post-merger integration is often cited as one of the big problems of, uh, of mergers and acquisitions. What are reasons for failure? Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, um, especially for conglomerate mergers, um, these might not even, these might be mergers that aren't done for financial reasons, for the reasons of, uh, of, of achieving profits or, or uh, securing profits, but they're often pursued due to private interests by managers. So they want to um, 
increase their social status. They want to be part of a DAX, uh, of, a, of, of, of the DAX maybe, or they want to be, they want to increase their power, they want to increase influence, they want to increase income, right? So this is not something that's necessarily in the interest of the firm. So empire building is often considered an important issue here. Market and stakeholders react after the, uh, after the announcements. Um, interestingly, what you often see is once a merger is announced, or once, a, uh, uh, once the intention to merge is announced, often the price for targets increases. Um, the price for acquirers often decreases. So it's often when you announce that I'm going to merge with firm X, that's often considered bad news for your company, it's considered good news for the other company. And the implication here is often that uh, there's a, a degree of overpayment on the part of the uh, acquirer. Okay? And of course, part of the expected profits, part of what you expect to make in terms of synergies, in terms of uh, the positive benefits, are in the end transferred to the target's shareholders or soon to be ex-shareholders, the ones that sell. Okay? This is, of course, even more uh, extreme when we, think of, uh, uh, when we think of one target and several potential acquirers, right? Then you can get into a bidding situation where lots of firms try to bid for one particular, uh, for one particular uh, target, and that, of course, is going to lead to even higher gains for the shareholders of the target. And as I said, post-merger difficulties might, uh, uh, might be important, too. Um, so mergers and acquisitions are risky, um, they're unpredictable, and they often take place in periods of high uncertainty. So there's often external uncertainty, but also the way you manage the process is, uh, is often risky. So post-merger integration problems are also often, uh, um, <clears throat> are also often uh, unpredictable. And um, I think also when, when it comes to when it comes to competencies um, of integrating, of post-merger integration, it's difficult because unless you're a firm that keeps on, acquiring, keeps on acquiring other firms, a merger is not a frequent event, right? So it's a rare event. It's kind of difficult to prepare for what's going to happen. So it's something you need to learn, uh, you need to learn from scratch. Good. So to summarize, um, we know what mergers are. Uh, we know that mergers happen often. Um, they're often large and rare decisions for firms, and they fail very often. Okay, 50% failure rate is, is, uh, is high. Buyers and sellers have differing goals, and uh, to, um, uh, to be successful, both the buyer and the seller have to be willing to engage in that transaction. Um, Important are the three different types of uh, mergers and acquisitions, and um, <clears throat> the important parts are that you first identify the right target, you then find the uh, right synergy potential. So does it come from similarities? Does it come from complementarities? And finally, how do you go into the post-merger integration process, and how do you implement? Good. So at this point, that's it for me.